This is Michael Easley in Context. We see Christ. It will take a redeemed man or woman to be able to see Him. And it's by His loving kindness that we get to bow. Not because we're righteous in our own self. Not because we're better than those other sinners. Not because we're better than those people that vilify Christ and Christianity. Watch the temptation to look down on others rather than bowing down in worship. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, welcome back to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley. You know, as I listen to those words again, it's convicting as if it was the first time I taught them somewhere. It penetrates my own heart. It convicts me. It reminds me of the temptation of looking down on others rather than bowing down in worship. I had a friend in Texas who often said, why pray when you can worry? <laughs> There's probably a corollary here. Uh, why, uh, why bow down in worship when we can look down on people, perhaps? The Christian life is a complicated life. Well, it's not really, but we make it complicated because we think of it in our own terms, in our own view of life. To live the Christian life the way Christ designed, to live the life God intends for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ, requires a continual recalibration to the Word, not to the world. So in that vein, as we continue looking at Psalm 5, we're going to be reminded of God's loving kindness. We're going to be reminded of what it means to bow down and worship as an individual who has a personal relationship with a holy God and what is involved in this kind of prayer. Now, as you're going to hear in the message, but it's a good reminder always, loving kindness, in my opinion, is the single most important term in our Old Testament. Depending on what Bible translation you use, The word is rendered loving kindness in the New American Standard. It's rendered steadfast love in the ESV. And many other Bibles uh, will vary the translation, which is one of the reasons I like the NSB, because it's always consistent in using the term loving kindness. So you know this is a big, important word. A little cumbersome for us to say, but sometimes it's good to learn what these words mean. What does God's loving kindness mean? Well, as you'll hear again, He loves to be loyal to two things, his chosen people and his covenant promise. This is not a loyalty like man's best friend, a.k.a. the dog. This is not loyalty to your spouse or to a friend. This is God's loyalty, and his loyalty is ethical. When he says something, his character, his person, uh, the reliability of who he is, when he makes a promise, it's good, period. And he loves, ethically, to be loyal to, to that promise. When he chooses a people in the Old Testament, when he chose Israel, he loved to be loyal to his people. And when he chose you to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he loves to be loyal to you. So God's promises and God's people, he loves to be loyal to them. That's the kind of father we have. We live in a frenetic society that pulls us a lot of different directions, and we never stop to rest in the fact that we have a God who loves us and has this loving kindness toward us. The challenge then is do we frenetically try to respond to life with our human resources, or do we take a breath, and do we stop, 
and recognize we have a sovereign God who's not pacing heaven's floor, worried about our lives or other people's lives, but he's sovereign, he's kind, he's holy, he's just, he's merciful, and he desires an intimate, personal relationship with you. Well, let's continue listening to some of the backstory of Psalm 5. And the term loving kindness in verse 7 to me is the linchpin of the whole psalm. Loving kindness means two things. It means God loves to be loyal to his covenant, and God loves to be loyal to his chosen people. God loves to be loyal to two things, his covenant and his chosen people. The word loyalty falls flat in the American brain. God is not loyal like a dog is loyal to his owner. Uh, that, that really isn't loyalty, that's stupidity. You can feed the dog, neglect the dog, beat the dog with a newspaper, and it comes back and wags his tail. That's not loyalty, that's stupidity. So and their brain is that big around, get over it. They love us and we love them, end of story. That's not a good definition of loyalty. Loyalty is an ethical character that says, when I make a decision, I will never change. When I chose these people, I will never unchoose them. When I give you a promise called my covenant, I will never change it. And God's character is not an emotional gooey love. God's character is, I, as God, love to be loyal to my word. I love to be loyal to my people. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he loves to be loyal to you. If you have trusted him, if you put your faith in him, and you read his promises and you go, oh, if I really trust that promise or not, you can trust that promise. Not because you read it differently, because the God who authored the promise is trustworthy. God loves to be loyal to two things. What are they? His chosen people and his covenant promises. See, they're C and P, so you can remember them. God loves to be loyal to what? Chosen people and his covenant promises. God loves to be loyal to what? His chosen people and his covenant promise. That's what the word chesed means. And if you use the NASB, every time it occurs in your Old Testament, they consistently translate it loving kindness. It's a cumbersome word. It's a big word. I like it. It's not love. It's not mercy. It's not kind, which most English translations gloss it. And this is one of the reasons if you study, just use the NASB as a study. You don't have to use it as your primary Bible if you're, if you're, you're in love with another translation. I get that. But every time it occurs in the NASB, they faithfully render it chesed, loving kindness. By your loving kindness, the psalmist has no virtue of his own. What does he do? He bows down. Look at it. I will enter your house, and at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence before you. Bow down has a root word that means fear. You bow for lots of reasons, but the reason he bows is because he's afraid, and not afraid in the sense of you know, looming judgment, but he's afraid. Revelation 1.17, the angel of the Lord occur, appears to John, and listen, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. If you want to do an interesting study, look up all the times angels appear on the scene in the Bible and look at man or woman's response. Most of the time, they're what? They're afraid. There's no buddy high-five chum stuff. They're on their face. 
And that's just an angel. That's why I think eternity is going to be eternity. Because the first time you see Christ, you're going to throw yourself in the dirt. He's going to pick you back up and say, it's okay. And you're going to fall back over and he's going to look at the next one. And say, get up and fall down. It's going to take eternity for Jesus to keep picking us up. (laughs) When you see him, you're going to fall down. I love the little, it's only recorded in one of the Gospels, I think it's Matthew, when uh, they come to arrest Jesus at Gethsemane. And he says, I am, and they fall down. Love that scene. What a bunch of embarrassed soldiers. They fall down with your shield and your armor and your sword and your hilt, and all of them tumbling over each other. How embarrassing. It's like the Monty Python review, you know. This is the army of Rome. Jesus just knocks him over with a word. You think when we see him, we're going to be afraid? It's an interesting word. And again, I think we've sort of watered it down. Psalm 2.11 says, Worship the Lord in reverence and rejoice with trembling. You ever been in a situation where you're so excited, but you're terrified at the same time? One of the first times Cindy and I uh, met one of our presidents, we didn't know we were going to meet him. We were sort of, it was a bait and switch. We were told to come to a certain function down in Washington, D.C., which we lived near there for 11 years or so. And we didn't know we were going to meet the president. And I'm glad we didn't because it's good not to know those things. And we were in the Oval Office there with just a handful of people. And, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't plan, what do you say to the president when you meet him the first time? Uh, hi. You know, my name's Michael Easley. So what? He meets 86,000 people a day, you know, so what difference does it make? And as I reflected on that, I go, he's just, he's just a guy. Before he ran for office, he was a nobody. And now he's a somebody. Now the whole world knows his face. We see Christ. It will take a redeemed man or woman to be able to see him. And it's by his loving kindness that we get to bow. Not because we're righteous in our own self. Not because we're better than those other sinners. Not because we're better than those people that vilify Christ and Christianity. Watch the temptation to look down on others rather than bowing down in worship. Watch the temptation. Maybe you are better than me at this. Evil cannot stand, and worshipers can only bow. And maybe we have become too sophisticated and too chummy in our walk with Christ to realize we have a holy God. And the only reason we can relate to him is because of his loving kindness, which becomes a parallel for his grace and his mercy and his salvation in the New Testament. Number one is a cry for help. God, why aren't you being just? Number two, when you look at the evil who do all these things bad, I know I can only come to you as a worshiper who's been compelled by your loving kindness. So you see the movement of the psalm. At first, God be just. And now he's saying, well, I understand that it's only by your loving kindness I can worship you. And then the psalm turns where he asks, lead me into righteousness. So I suggest a progression. As he prays this anxiety-driven prayer, morning by morning, and he wants God to deal with the enemy. 
God be just because I'm the good guy and they're the bad guys. And as he starts articulating that in the prayer, he realizes, hey, I'm not any better than them. It's only by your loving kindness I can even approach you. And when I approach you, I'm on my face. So what's the next prayer? Help me be righteous. Help me walk in that righteousness. And that's precisely where he takes us in verses 8 to 12. Oh, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. The causal reason the language is, the reason I need you to lead me in righteousness is because these evil, unjust forces are after me, and my natural response is to want to kill them. But you don't want me to respond that way. That's your job. My job is to be led in your righteousness. Make your weight straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out. For they are rebellious against you. But, here's the contrast. But, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them. That those who love your name may exalt you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. Surround him with favor as a shield. So thirdly, he says, lead me in righteousness. This morning prayer, he's not being asked to be led through a valley, to be led through trouble, to be led to victory. He's saying, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. David says a lot about his enemies here. The word enemy is a different word here in your text. It means a watcher. It's the idea of one who's lying in wait to trip me up. They're watching me along the roadside. Look again at the litany. Foes, nothing reliable. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. It's a very grotesque metaphor for the stench of death. That's what the word means. If you've been around someone who's dying, the so-called death rattle, um, there is a stench of death coming out of the throat as a person dies, perhaps over a long period of time. That's exactly the image here. They, their voice is stinking death. That's what he's saying. It's a very graphic picture. They flatter with their tongue. Same thing James says. Hold them guilty. Deal with their sins. Now, you know the word imprecation. Imprecation is when you pray for God to kill your enemy. Psalm 55 is an imprecatory psalm. God killed my enemy. So this part of the psalm becomes an imprecation. But notice, he's not saying, God, just destroy them outright. There is a process in this. If you lead me in your righteousness, I'm going to trust you to deal with the enemy. It's a very fine balance in the psalms. Uh, and and we've got to be careful when we try to apply imprecation. God, please kill all those people that hate us. Amen. In Jesus' name. There was an old Monty Python skit where this Anglican priest says, Oh Lord, please bless this thy holy grenade to blow thine enemies to bits in thy mercy. And that's sort of the way we think. We don't say it, but that's the way we think about it. And um, after 9-11, we, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and um, we had one man die in the, from the church, and we had one burned uh, about 60% of his body, Brian Birdwell, and we had probably oh, 120 people working in the Pentagon that day. 
one of our good friends uh, rescued about 12 people out of the fire before his admiral stood him down. It impacted our church tremendously right inside the beltway there. And I remember uh, the recoil of watching men and women who love Christ desperately, who love their country first. And I so appreciate Michael acknowledging our men and women who served our country. I love the military. I love the military. They're the finest people I've ever met. Because they love Christ and they serve without question. They're just extraordinary men and women. And I remember the feelings of anger and, and vindiction and revenge and yet compassion and, and all those different emotions. Maybe you didn't respond that way, but it was difficult for me. And I decided to pray along the line, Dear Lord, please help these enemies come to know you. But if they don't, stop them from harming your people. That's as close to imprecation as I can get. Now, I'd like to pray for God to just destroy them all, but I can't. Because Calvary's level ground. As hard as that is for me to swallow, Calvary is level ground. Once we go beyond that, we're self-righteous in our process. Well, the psalm is not praying for the destruction. Verse 10, by their own devices, let them fall. In other words, let them be caught in their own traps. America is not a theocracy. As much as we love the country, this is not a theocracy. A lot of good Christian people live here. A lot of phenomenal ministries happen because of Americans. No debate. But we're not a theocracy. So we live with a different rule and a different land and a different time. We're more like the Israelites in Cana than we are the Israelites in Israel. It's hard to remember as much as we love our country. Peter Craigie writes, though evil persons are excluded from the presence of God because of their sin, it does not follow that the psalmist would admit by virtue that he is good. The psalmist's entrance into the house of God is based only upon the abundance of your loving kindness. Verse 10, the summary, for they are rebellious against you. There's a triplet here of verbs. We don't have time to look at them. I'll entrust you to look at each one of them. Let me just point out three times. Be glad, sing for joy, exult in you. The triplet is take joy in God, not this anxious ridden morning prayer, but take joy in God and find joy in God because he is our shelter. He surrounds us. Um. Finally, in verse 12, we read that he loves those who love his name. For it is you who blesses the righteous, O Lord. You surround him with favor as a shield. The picture is um, shields are a defensive tool. Uh, Some say crown. The word just means around. So the idea is you're protecting him around. So the psalm begins with the prayer for justice. It ends with for the acknowledgement of protection. It laments about the injustice of his enemy. It talks about the destruction of his enemy. And in the middle of it is the worshiper's response that because of his abundant loving kindness, that's the only reason he can bow and worship. A couple of things just to conclude by lessons. Um, The prayer is to be led in righteousness. And as I was studying through this a few weeks ago, I was greatly convicted. I don't know that I prayed to be led in righteousness. I pray for God to stop my back pain. I pray for my kids to know Christ. I pray for my oldest to find an extraordinary young man who loves Christ tremendously. I pray that my wife won't have to shovel snow anymore with a husband with a bad back. 
I pray for people that don't know Christ. I pray for a lot of things. But do I pray to be righteous? Have you? Do you pray, God, lead me in your righteousness? This is exactly what the psalmist is saying. A lot what it means. We'll talk more tomorrow about the term righteousness. Secondly, how good are you at waiting? How good are you at waiting? I don't get better at this for some reason. And I, I pray about this. I ask God to help me through this. And yeah, there are times I do a little better than others, but typically I'm pretty impatient, as I already shared. F.B. Myers, again, we don't like the weight on the dock for the ship. It's, it's a hard corollary to think that the reason our prayers aren't answered is because we're so bad at waiting. But I suspect that may be, may be some of it. The reality of life on earth is going to frustrate the joy of the believer. That's it. Life on this sod is going to frustrate us at times, and it did the psalmist. Fear swells up. We wake up with anxiety. Maybe we go to bed with it. The morning comes, and we immediately get to our knees, which is a great thing, and we're asking God for his help. We're asking the sovereign king to protect us. Don't let the enemy distract you. Worry less about the enemy and more about your intimacy. Worry less about the anxiety and worry more about the Almighty. Even when no answer comes, we're surrounded. That's what the psalmist says. It is you who blesses the righteous. You surround him with favor as a shield. So what is it? It's faith. So when my prayers aren't answered, I still believe. When I don't find what I want, I still trust. And I learn to sit on the dock and wait. Our Father in heaven, you are good and kind always. We are slow and hard to learn. For the men and women here that are doing it so well, bless them and encourage them as they help others. For those of us that need the prodding of your spirit and the help to be Men and women who seek you in righteousness, who love you well, who follow you well, give us that energy, give us that courage, and give me that patience as we wait on the dock for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. When you examine the things you pray for, what does that list look like? If it's like mine, it can often be a shopping list of, God, will you please do these things? One of the many lessons we learn from studying the Psalter is that these prayers were different than a Western view of consumerism and materialism and God give me X, Y, and Z. In Paul's letter to the Church of Galatia, we know this passage well. He challenges them to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Then he makes these wonderful comparisons and contrast about the fruit of the Spirit is this, compared and contrasted to the deeds of the flesh that are evident. Now all that to say, Let me ask you, change your prayer life a little bit. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. What's Paul saying there? The fruit, which I would argue is singular, by the way, is love. The fruit of God's Spirit is love. And what does love look like? It looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
And, and one of those, I'm certain, jumps off the page at you. I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm not faithful. I don't have self-control. Whatever it is, I assure you, one of those manifestations of God's love probably causes you trouble. This is the fruit of God's Spirit working in your life and mine. This is transformation. Why don't you try to pray that list or pray from Psalm 5, but pray some prayers that aren't simply, God, give me this, God, fix that. And what's fantastic about this is when you pray for patience, when you pray for self-control, when you pray for gentleness, only you and God will see the answer to that prayer. This is Michael Easley in contact. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com.